Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Jay Hurdle, and we'll be discussing all things ankle sprains and chronic ankle instability. Follow along as we unpack his paper, An Updated Model of Chronic Ankle Instability. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is a proud partner of HUMAC Norm by CSMI. One of the best and simplest ways we can resolve a limb symmetry strength deficit is simple isolated joint training on the HUMAC Norm isokinetic system. Isokinetic resistance allows the athlete to stress their muscles at full capacity throughout the entire range of motion. Supplement your athlete rehab or performance program with a highly effective and data-rich machine by using the HUMAC Norm Isokinetic System by CSMI. To learn more about the new HUMAC Norm and refurbis machines, visit humacnorm.com. Jay, how you doing, man? Great. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Of course. Yeah, we're uh, really excited to have you on just because... Um, I think ankle sprains and chronic ankle instability are this interesting topic in that a lot of times um, people can maybe not take things as seriously as maybe it warrants, um, especially early on, just due to how common these injuries are. And so um, I'm really excited to dive into all these sorts of things with you. But before I get too ahead of myself, um, why don't you just give the listeners a brief introduction to who you are, what you do, and maybe how you got to the roles that you're holding right now? Sure. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm Jay Hurdle. Um, I work at the University of Virginia and um, I'm the Joe Geek Professor of Sports Medicine here at UVA. And uh, my primary faculty appointments in the Department of Kinesiology. And I've got a, a joint appointment in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And um, I co-direct a lab called the Exercise and Sport Injury Lab or uh, EASL. Um, and um, my research, uh, you know, throughout my career has focused on ankle sprains and ankle instability, um, and, um, really tried to approach those clinical problems from, uh, a number of different perspectives. So certainly, um, biomechanics and neuromuscular control, um, are important, but then, um, you know, also looking at things in terms of like prevention science or, um, uh, public health uh, approaches um, as well. So um, have been more a studier of the um, the topic or the problem than to, to just, you know, pigeonhole and say like, oh, I only do biomechanics or something like that. Definitely. And I, that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast is because that the paper that we're discussing today um, has a really interesting and really cool model that kind of highlights a lot of those things that you were talking about. Not only does it touch on, you know, biomechanics or neuromuscular control, but it also discusses the human aspect of these sorts of things within ankle sprains and chronic ankle instability. So I just find that to be 
super cool. And I think the way you guys did that was amazing. Um, I, I should point, point out, I, I'm an athletic trainer. That's my clinical background. So um, I actually do work with real patients. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, a combination of uh, applied as well as research is always great. Um, well, kicking things off, I kind of referenced this a little bit earlier, but um, you know, ankle sprains, one of the most common lower limb musculoskeletal injuries, right? Um, as kids, I feel like it's almost a constant that you're going to sprain your ankle at some point if you're active or doing something. Um, but I feel like often we're just like, eh, it's just a sprained ankle. You'll be fine. Walk it off, all those sorts of things. Um, in your expertise, what are some of the downstream effects of maybe not taking an ankle sprain seriously early on? Sure. I, I think the, the, the biggest, you know, challenge is that, um, people can re recover function relatively quickly. Um, in fact, they can like recover their function before the healing has taken place for, for the ligament. Right. Um, but you know, what is not know well known publicly, you know, is that the recurrence rates for ankle sprains are, um, you know, definitely above 50%. And, you know, we know that like the most common predisposition to suffering an ankle sprain is having a history of an ankle sprain. Um, and then when you start to look at, um, you know, additional, um, problems down the line, um, the development of chronic ankle instability, um, you know, it's estimated around 30 or 40% of individuals who suffer a first time ankle sprain, um, will still be having substantial problems at least, at least a year later. Um, that's not something that we really normally think about when, uh, you know, we're coming off the soccer field or the basketball court or something like that, um, with an ankle sprain. Um, and I think, you know, even further down, uh, stream, then you, know, you also have an elevated risk of, uh, the development of ankle osteoarthritis, um, which, um, you know, is, is certainly not, um, at the same level of risk as suffering a recurrent ankle sprain, um, is, but, um, you know, repetitive sprains and, and severe sprains, um, are risk factors for developing ankle osteoarthritis. And I think that it's a really uh, underappreciated um, uh, you know, group of facts there that I think rarely get um, uh, told to patients with acute ankle sprains. Can we maybe just uh, get a better grip on like the, the operational definition of ankle instability and kind of dive into sure. um, what factors kind of define ankle instability? Yeah. So, so I, I think, um, the, the operational definitions are, are really important here, right? So, um, you know, chronic ankle instability or, or what's often called CAI, um, a couple of things have to happen. One, an individual needs to be at least a year out from their first ankle sprain. So it, it's not that they're recovering, you know, from their first acute ankle sprain, but you know, they've been having problems for at least a year. Um, they have, um, uh, symptoms that are persistent. Um, and those symptoms can include, um, pain, swelling, stiffness. Um, it also has to affect their functional level that, that they have a reduced level of functional performance compared to where they were, uh, prior to, to their, their injury. And that, that may be sport specific, or it may be, you know, as simple as like walking on an uneven grass or something like that, that, um, that, that can be something that, um, you know, irritates people that they were able to do 
fine before. Um, so all of those things kind of go into the, the definition of, of chronic ankle and stability. And then I think when you start to get into the causes, there's kind of two subgroupings underneath. One would be what's often called like mechanical instability. Um, and, you know, ankle laxity is going to be the biggest thing there or hyper laxity, right? That um, after the anterior talofibular ligament and or the calcaneofibular ligament uh, get disrupted, um, the joints move in ways that they didn't move before. Um, um, you know, most often we see that with like an anterior drawer mechanism, but certainly with um, more inversion tailor tilt being a big one. And also I think more internal rotation of the talus on the, the tibia as well is, is one that sometimes uh, underappreciated. And obviously people who have, you know, gross mechanical instability, um, they're going to be surgical candidates. Um, um, you, you know, maybe early on, even if, if you know, if you've got, um, uh, you know, ruptures of all, all the ligaments, but certainly if, um, you know, folks who have in recurrent sprains and it's like, they're just, just too lax. Um, so kind of on the next to mechanical instability would be, you know, what historically maybe was called functional instability um, or this notion of, of either sensory motor or, or neuromuscular deficits, right? And um, that, you know, kind of starting with the thought that um, when a ligament tissue gets disrupted, um, it's not just the mechanical um function of that ligament in terms of holding the two bones together, yes, that gets lost, but you've also probably got damage to the neural structures within that ligament as well. And you've got, um, uh, you know, your mechanoreceptors um, that, that are going to contribute to proprioception or the body's ability to sense where that joint is in space. So we know that the, there's, there's afferent loss there, and that is ultimately going to also affect the motor output going back to the muscles that, that cross the ankle joint. Um, so that's where you kind of get that both sensory and motor deficits. Um, and there's lots of ways to, you know, that that's been measured in the research literature. But, you know, if you think about something like balance, right, that, you know, someone's balance is worse because they don't have the motor control, but the motor control might not be um, uh, as optimal as possible because, the right sensory information isn't getting there, um, uh, getting getting to the central nervous system. So it, it's both sides. You know, it is really both sensory and motor. So yeah. So I, I think when you look at ankle instability, that those are you know you have to be concerned about both the, the mechanical side and then also the the sensory motor side. Most definitely, and Jay. I thought that was great how you just kind of provided the the multiple systems approach to that and understanding. Um, we'll probably be diving into each subset of those in a little bit, but um, before we kind of go into those sorts of specifics, um, the title of this paper is talking about an updated model for ankle instability, right? Um, my, I guess, my first question would just be, you know, why is it that we need an updated model? What was, I guess, quote unquote, wrong? or uh, less right with the previous models that we had? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, uh, I, I'll you know, jump into history um, a little bit here, and uh, hopefully people find this, this interesting. But, um, you know, um, there was a, an orthopedic surgeon out, out of uh, the UK back in the late 60s. Um, his last name was Freeman. And he published a, a uh, collection of 
papers that use both human models and animal models to basically demonstrate um, proprioceptive deficits after joint injury. Um, and um, the, the human injury model that he used was ankle sprains. Um, and those papers went virtually unsighted for like at least 15 years. And then in the, the 80s, um, another orthopedic surgeon, uh, Hans Tropp, who's um, from Scandinavia, he kind of picked this up and um, started to look at um, balance measurements with force plates. So force plates had just kind of been developed in the, the late 70s and became more more widely usable. And he kind of presented the, the model of the the mechanical versus the functional instability. Um, um, and there was a decent amount of work in the, the 80s and, and 90s that, that went into to both of those realms. And um, I finished my PhD in, in 1999 and was, was really, you know, kind of trying to figure out where I wanted my research to go in regards to ankle sprains and ankle instability. And I started working on this model paper uh, that was ultimately published in, in 2002 in the Journal of Athletic Training, where I got away from calling it mechanical um, instability and functional instability, but instead used the terms um, mechanical insufficiencies and um, functional in insufficiencies. Um, and um, you know, then tried to kind of break down. Well, within each of those realms, um, you know, there there are different um, clinical presentations or physiological presentations. So that, like, in addition to laxity, there could also be some other mechanical problems. Um, for example, you could have hypomobility in some directions. You're really thinking about arthrokinematics, right? Like, it, it's pretty common for someone with ankle instability to have. Um, uh, laxity, increased laxity on anterior drawer. But then when you try to posteriorly translate the talus on the tibia, there's a restriction there, right? And that's actually like one of the main manual therapy um, joint mobilization treatments that, that we'll do. Um, well, that arthrokinematic restriction, that's mechanical. So, you know, it should be, you know, considered along with the, the laxity. And there's other things like scar tissue that, and, you know, osteophytes and things like that that can factor in there. And then on the functional side, you know, we have not only like balance deficits, but also thinking about like strength deficits and um, reaction time deficits and things like that. And I think, you know, I was really, uh, you know, happy with the way that paper came out in 2002. And, um, you know, a lot of people read it, a lot of people cited it and things. And, um, you know, probably about a decade or so later, I started to think like there, there's some problems with that paper that don't reflect some of the um, more recent understandings um, uh, around um, ankle instability specifically, but also around kind of, you know, other things like uh, incorporating more of like the biopsychosocial model, um, uh, you know, when looking at, at injury uh, as a whole. So that was kind of the impetus to, to kind of say like, okay, you know, there's a lot of articles that have been published in, in this, you know, 15 year interval. There's some new theoretical models that, um, you know, have, have influenced me quite a bit. So that led me to think about, okay, how can we all put this together? So one of the things we ended up doing, you know, was, getting away from just the mechanical and the, the functional, but actually going to like kind of three main um, groupings, 
mechanical was still there. So thinking about like the pathomechanics, but then actually separating the sensory and the motor, okay, into their own groupings. And on the sensory side, not just thinking about like proprioception, but also thinking about things like kinesiophobia and pain perception um, and um, health-related quality of life, right? Those are all sensory um, perceptual aspects. And then on the motor side, um, you're thinking more about, okay, sure, we've got balance deficits, but like strength deficits, um, you know, one of the driving factors of strength deficits is probably arthrogenic muscle inhibition. Um, that was something that back in the uh, early 2000s was just kind of coming, um, you know, more into the mainstream. Um, and, you know, the other thing on like motor output side is, um, you know, Tricia, um Hubbard Turner down at UNC Charlotte has done some great work looking at, you know, young adults with chronic ankle instability are less physically active than young adults um, uh, who've never sprained their ankle. So even looking at like college students with chronic ankle instability versus college students who never sprained their ankle, those with chronic ankle instability were taking like 2,400 less steps per day. Like, you know, not just on one day of data collection, but months, right? And all of a sudden you start to think about, well, add up all those steps, right? And like, what other consequences are there from losing that? So so that, you know, was, was kind of the impetus was like, we learned a lot more about people's behavior and responses to ankle sprain and ankle instability. And then also trying to, to frame it. So kind of used three different um, perspectives. So one was to, you know, think about the, um, um, the biopsychosocial model and using, um, uh, you know, the ICF model and thinking about um, personal characteristics and environmental characteristics um, specific to individual patients and how those need to be considered, um, uh, you know, in the, the clinical presentation of, of chronic ankle instability. So that was one. Second was to kind of go more towards the, um, um, the dynamical systems theory of motor control, thinking about like self-organization and when a constraint is presented to the body. So for example, you have a more lax ankle. Well, how does the um, neuromuscular system respond to that by developing different or alternative movement strategies, even though there's something uh, you know, missing or something wrong. Right. So, um, so that idea of kind of, um, self-organization, um, fit in there. And then lastly, um, Melzack's, um, concept of like a neurosignature, which he really presented in terms of thinking about like chronic pain and the idea that you can get a, um, individuals with chronic pain actually, you know, get different neural, afferent and efferent responses um, related to um, extremity pain. Um, and uh, I basically kind of lifted that and said, it's not just about pain, but you can apply that to like their movement patterns um, as well. So, you know, that, that to me was, you know, as I kind of took a step back and thought about like, okay, what have we learned since the 2002 model? Those were the things that, you know, most impacted me. 
Yeah, uh, that I think that's great, and just understanding the the multitude of different factors that are associated with an entry like this. Um, I think the paper does a phenomenal job in terms of uh, giving each factor its you know its its time in the in the on the stage essentially, right? Um, and making sure that they're all being accounted for and addressed. Um, diving things a little bit more into specifics in terms of maybe path and mechanics. Uh, your paper touched on uh, an interesting part of this idea of about like using different labels, right? Um, and the idea of using the term an inversion sprain. You know, do we think at this point that the term inversion sprain is a misnomer? Yeah, I, um, I don't. I, I think inversion sprain still works. I think um, the term plantar flexion inversion sprain um, works for some ankle sprains, but but not for all. Um, you know, I, I think um, there, there's some pretty good um, evidence out of, out, um, from, uh, you know, actual like biomechanical reconstructions of, uh, ankle sprains that were captured on video that show the ankle can be, you know, in a, an inverted, um, you know, closed pack position and it can still go into hyperinversion. Um, um, you know, and, and we see that, um, you know, maybe like in a sport like tennis or something where there's straight lateral movement, um, going and something like, like that can happen. Um, so yeah, so I, I do think inversion is, is still important. And then I think the other thing to think about is also that role that the anterior talofibular ligament has in restricting, um, uh, internal rotation of the talus, um, that, um, that, that is, is underappreciated, I think. And, and almost thinking about like, does an, an ATFL injury, actually result in like rotary instability of the ankle um, at the same time as, as we have uh, valgus, right? I mean, and we like to simplify things into the, the cardinal planes. I mean, we do the same thing at, at the knee. Um, uh, you know, we, we do all of our, or most of our um, laxity tests are all like in the cardinal planes, even though we know that like um, the, we made those up, right? The, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, and I, and I love how you just kind of tied that in there, but especially when we're talking about things like the ATFL, right? Um, we always assume like that. I feel like that's the first, uh, pathoanatomic structure that people think of when they hear ankle sprain, right? Uh, and honestly, like rightfully so. Um, but the, uh, the lateral ankle is home to a lot more than just the lateral ankle ligaments, right? Um, your paper touched on a little bit from the concomitant injury side of things and understanding what other uh, injuries may occur with this type of mechanism. Can you maybe touch on what those injuries are and kind of maybe what to look out for if you're just dealing with someone who said, I sprained my ankle? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, so, you know, obviously first you, you do have to be concerned about some fracture, um, worries, um, especially thinking about the base of the fifth metatarsal and the possibility of having like an avulsion fracture of, of the peroneus brevis, um, is, is one thing and thinking about, um, fibular fractures as, as another, um, uh, potential thing acutely. Um, but you know, I usually start to think about the concomitant injuries is when like, when the person's not getting better when they should be right. And then it's like something else is, is going on here. And, um, you know, one thing that I definitely will think about is, um, you know, might they have, um, 
uh, like an osteochondral bruise um, on their talus. You know, did the talus uh, slam into the tibia? Um, so that's one thing um, that we definitely think about. Um, they can, you know, do they have some type of like sinus tarsi inflammation? Um, you know, maybe there's some scar tissue in the sinus tarsi that, um, you know, is, is irritating the synovium of, of the um, uh, the talocrural joint or the, or the subtalar joint. Uh, and then also thinking about like subtalar instability um, and like the possibility that um, did any of the ligaments on the lateral aspect of the subtalar joint get, get injured. Um, and, you know, is the person like having pain, like, eh, maybe that's not actually like CFL pain. Maybe that's actually, um, uh, you know, a little bit further down um, on the um, lateral aspect of the, this posterior subtalar joint or something like that. So, so those are all things that I think about a little bit. And then, you know, also, um, um, like calcaneocuboid or bifurcate ligament, things like that, you know, again, maybe their symptoms aren't actually over the ATFL. Maybe that swelling's a little bit further distally is just, you know, kind of looking at those things. Yeah. I think that that's always super important to understand that, you know, just because there was that, uh, the similar mechanism of an inversion sprain, right? Doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only thing that you're dealing with. You gave a great example earlier about the cardinal planes with regards to something like the knee. And I think that's also a great example in terms of like, you can, you know, tear your ACL and also tear, you know, your meniscus and your MCL and all other, you know, certain ligaments and things like that. And so um, I think it's just also just important for us to recognize that just because somebody had an inversion type mechanism doesn't mean that we're just dealing with a ligamentous injury. There's always going to be, or there, I shouldn't say always, but there are likely other factors that we also have to address throughout that. Um, Yeah. And and I think especially with recurrent sprains that you're going to get more and more of those um, concomitant injuries happening. Um, because the ligaments might already be gone, you know, so, so something else is trying to stop that, um, large degree of motion. Beautiful transition. We're just going to address some of those things. Um, could you maybe walk us through being the clinician that you are, right? How your evaluation process may differ from somebody with a first time ankle sprain versus somebody who has suspected CAI. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the first thing that, that I'll say is that, you know, you don't see a lot of people with chronic ankle instability just showing up in the clinic saying like, I'm here because my ankle gives way all the time. They're actually like likely to show up like after a bad recurrent sprain. Um, but then what you really have to do is to take a good history and get beyond that most recent um, um injury mechanism and say like, okay, you've got a history of prior sprains. Well, what happened between the sprains? Like, you know, did you have these, you know, episodes of the ankle giving way or um, you feel like your ankle's turning in and and you can't control it and things like that. So, so, you know, history is super important uh, um, uh, on everything. Um, But then, um, you know, thinking about, um, looking for those secondary injuries. Um, you know, you don't want to pass up the, the primary ones, but, you know, um, I'm usually looking for things of like, um, you know, do, do I need, am I the best person to be looking at this right now? Or, you know, are they really going to be like an imaging candidate and, um, they, they, they need that. Um, so, you know, definitely wear their, um, um, 
symptoms are, where their tenderness is, where their swelling is, is very important. Um, I'm a big believer in the uh, Ottawa ankle rules. I, I, I don't think they miss many fractures. I mean, certainly still refer some uh, people who get imaging and don't have any fractures, but that's okay. Um, um, so yeah, so you know, are they tender over the fifth metatarsal? Are they tender um, uh, on the posterior part of the malleolus, um, especially going up away from the ligament attachments? Um, that that's going to be really important to me. Uh, you know, on the medial side, you know, do they have anything around the navicular? Do they have anything around the um, the deltoid ligament? That makes me start to think like, ooh, did they maybe uh, potentially have a bone bruise on the um, anterior medial side of their talus or something like that. Um, so those are things that I'm worried about. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in um, what their strength looks like around their ankle. Like, are they able to generate contractions? Um, do they have muscle inhibition um, right now? How many muscle groups is that going to? Um, obviously, the, the laxity patterns are, are going to be um, important. And then, uh, you know, lastly, I'd also say, like, what does their gait look like? And, you know, do they need some type of assisted device right now? Um, it drives me nuts seeing people like limping around in, um, uh, you know, like a walking boot or something like good, good job with the walking boot, protecting the tissue. But like, they're so asymmetrical on that thing. Like, you know, should they, you know, be on a single crutch? Should they be on a cane or something that, um, you know, protects the joints uh, even better. But th those are the things I'm thinking about. Definitely. Jay, you had mentioned uh, the idea of like this, you know, tracking to see if there's muscle inhibition. Um, can you maybe just dive a little bit deeper on your process in terms of trying to figure out if there is muscle inhibition and like what certain tests or measures you may use for that? Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I will admit that I, I don't do anything more than um, isometric contractions, um, resisted isometric, uh, contractions, um, well, active contractions too. So, you know, kind of first, can they actively go through plantar and dorsiflexion, inversion and eversion? But then when you start to apply resistance to that, um, if they're not able to give a strong contraction, why is that? Is it because of pain? Like, is, are they actually saying, yeah, that hurts and that hurts, you know, right over the tendon uh, or something like that? That to me is like, okay, that's probably not inhibition. That's probably um, maybe a secondary injury we need to be thinking about. But, you know, if you're three or five days out from, from the most recent acute sprain and they can't generate a lot of force against um, resistance and it's not really pain, um, it's probably an inhibition issue and something that we need to think about, like, okay, we've got to do something to try to kind of um, jumpstart the, um, the neuromuscular uh, contraction abilities here. And, you know, maybe use something like cryokinetics or something like that to kind of take the sensory away and say like, okay, now try to do it, um, uh, do, do some contractions against resistance and, and things like that. Most definitely. I do you think like beyond, I think my brain always just goes back to like the ACL in terms of um, that's where a lot of the evidence from a neuromuscular inhibition or AMI, um, the, that's where the evidence that we have is. Um, and so 
a lot of times people refer to maybe using things like NMES, using things like you had referenced uh, cryokinetics or just general icing of the knee um, before activity as, you know, different methods. Um, are those pretty consistent within the ankle of like methods that you use? Or are there any other areas that you try and dive into? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't see a lot of people using um, NMES, um, although you certainly could. Um, you know, I, I think that um, that, that is a tool that should be in, a, in every clinician's toolbox. Um, you know, also doing, um, I, I like to do a lot of things with manual resistance. I like to get my hands on, on people and, you know, you can be having, you know, for example, like one hand providing resistance on the foot, but then the positioning of your other hand, you know, can be, you, can you be giving some, some tactile, um, feedback over the muscle group you're trying to activate, you know? So for example, if you're, um, you know, working on the, um, the peroneal or, or fibularis muscles, can you have one hand that's, um, you know, kind of over the lateral side of the, the leg and is just providing some sensory, uh, input like there, you know, you're not squeezing them hard or anything, but like just to, to provide some additional feedback there. I love that. Just a, a couple extra little pearls for those working with uh, these types of populations. Um, there's some evidence that shows, you know, for those individuals who have suffered a lateral ankle sprain, um, that there's thickening of some of those lateral ligaments, like the ATFL. Um, is a thicker ligament better? Yeah, that, that's a fascinating question. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we know the, the answer to, to that. Um, but I'm, I'm going to try to answer the question. I'm not going to def deflect the question. Um, I don't think it is um, because I think that it's probably thicker because of star scar tissue. And I, I don't know that that scar tissue would be aligned in a way that maybe actually um, uh, provides the same um, mechanical um, properties uh, as, you know, healthy um, like type uh, one collagen fibers in an uninjured ligament would. Um, pure conjecture, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I almost wonder like, is, you know, is a thicker um, ATFL, like is that the, um, the equivalent of like a bone spur, you know, that like the bone spur is, you know, uh, the body's um, attempt to provide more, support somewhere right <laughs> or more uh structure um but it usually doesn't work out that great um and, and i wonder if if the you know thicker ligaments that we're seeing on, on ultrasound imaging after um you know months af after ankle ligament injury might not be reflected uh, about that uh but again i'm conjecture right <laughs> Yeah, always, always difficult to uh, really get to the bottom of those sorts of questions, just because I feel like, I mean, you see that kind of thickening with other areas too. you know, you see a, a tendinopathic tendon, whether that's the Achilles or patella, you know, there's increased thickness. Um, but at the same time, there's always, you know, like, there's pathology there. And so um, while it may like at face value seem helpful, and they're like, Oh, it's thicker, it must be stronger, there must be something that improves the stability in that area. Um, I think you touched on that very well. Now that it, it may actually be more pathological than helpful for those sorts of presentations. Um, diving in a little bit more into some of these kind of uh, kinetic and kinematic factors, 
with these sorts of presentations. Jay, how does somebody's gait change if they're uh, suffering from something like a suspected CAI? Sure. So, um, so that that's an area where um, I've done a, a lot of research in, in my group with, um, and you know, as a group, right? We're talking about like group mean differences between people with chronic ankle instability and let's say people that have, have never sprained their ankle before. Um, a, a couple of things um, show up. So, so one is that um, individuals with chronic ankle instability will tend to. Um, have a more inverted positioning of their ankle um, throughout large chunks of the gait cycle, uh, even on steps where they they don't sprain their ankle. Okay, so that that can be in the um, the swing phase when the foot's not on the ground. That you know is it you know is the ankle kind of hanging there? Maybe because the um, the ATFL and the CFL are are not intact? Um, is it hanging there because there's not as much um, muscle muscular tendinous stiffness in the, the perineals um, because there's some inhibition there or something? Um, but then when we get into the stance phase, um, same thing. They kind of stay in a more inverted position. And then um, a, an analog to that is they're also going to have more pressure going through the lateral column of their foot. Um, so through like plantar pressure um, studies, we see increased um, pressures in the, the lateral column of the foot in people with CAI versus um, uh, people that have never sprained their, their ankle before. And if you kind of think about like why that might be, um, if we go back to thinking about joints and their open and closed pack positions, um, you know, at the um, the ankle complex, the closed pack um, position is going to be like in, in full dorsiflexion, right? And the f- um, closed pack position of the subtalar joint is going to be in supination. So if a joint has lost its ligamentous stability or has an impaired instability and it's lost the musculotendinous stiffness around it, you kind of have to go back to the bones themselves maintaining the stability. So maybe that foot's staying in a more supinated subtalar position to stabilize the ankle. And a consequence of being supinated is that you don't pronate. So the center pressure never goes over the medial side. So it just, that center pressure stays lateral and goes up the lateral column. And then when the person pushes off, their foot's kind of hanging there in an inverted position. So um, that, that to me is, is the biggest change, um, that, that happens in terms of gait. Yeah. I, I really think that those are such fascinating aspects of it. Um, I, and I think that you put that very well in that you kind of have to look for other reasons to explain what's going on because at face value, you see something and it, it doesn't make sense where it's like, well, an injury happened and normally the body's pretty good at compensating in some facet or another. Um, however, it it looks as though the body just uh, is not necessarily compensating, actually holding itself in a more inverted or supinated position. Um, but I had never really heard of that thought process in terms of um, looking at the subtalar joint and understanding like the the closed pack position there. So I think that's that would be a helpful kind of reasoning strategy for a lot of the listeners yeah yeah you know and and, and the the consequence of that though is like um if someone comes down and has initial contact and 
it's hitting more of the lateral side of the foot. Like they're hitting in a position that's going to make them more vulnerable to have another inversion sprain. So like it, you know, it's kind of like, well, it makes sense during part of the gait cycle, but it doesn't make sense across the whole gait cycle. Um, um, so that, that, that's kind of my thinking about, um, you know, really needing to, um, have gait training as part of ankle sprain rehab. Um, you know, that if we just do, you know, balance and range of motion and strength work, we've shown that yes, people will get somewhat better. Um, but their gait pattern is not going to change. And then we've done some other studies where, um, we've specifically tried to do some gait training interventions to encourage, um, the patients to pronate more. And what we've, we've seen is that, um, the patients still get better, but they actually get more better than if we don't include gait training. So mm-hmm. that is, that is quite interesting. Um, Okay, up next on the docket, I've got a little bit of a tall order for you, just because this, this may take a second. But um, I think your paper did an awesome job of using the figures to kind of describe this sure. um, complex and the interaction or interacting variables associated with chronic ankle instability. Can you do your best to kind of describe this model uh, to the listeners? And then we can also reference your actual paper so that they can take a look at it as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the paper is open access, so everybody can get to it. So which is great. Um so yeah, so so imagine that you've got um three circles, um, three big circles. One of them is kind of in the center um uh towards the top, and then you've got two circles uh to either side of that that center one underneath them. Um and uh basically, you know, thinking about the first thing that happens is that um an ankle ligament injury occurs. And, um, what effect is that going to have? And that effect is it goes to that first circle, which is the pathomechanical insufficiencies box. And, and within there, the biggest thing that we have is laxity. Um, so that knowing that if we disrupt ligamentous tissue, there's going to be more, um, laxity, but then like inside that, that pathomechanical big circle, there's a bunch of little circles. So one of those circles, little circles is laxity. Another one might be arthrokinematic restrictions. And another one might be um, um, like scar tissue. Um, uh, I'm forgetting off the top. I had exactly what we called it, but, you know, basically um, like hypertrophic um, synovitis type, type stuff. Um, and um, then we've got the other two big circles one of them is going to be sensory perceptual and the other one is going to be motor behavior. And we can think about having impairments in, in both of those. So on the sensory perceptual side, the little circles inside the sensory perception uh, circle are going to be things like um, proprioception, pain, kinesiophobia, um, health-related quality of, of life. Um and then in the third big circle, which is going to be kind of motor behavior, the little circles inside there are going to be things like um, uh, muscle inhibition, strength, uh, reflex reactions, balance, and like movement patterns. Okay. And you kind of think about those, all of the little circles inside of the big circle. There's 
research in, in, in the literature that shows as a group, patients with chronic ankle instability tend to have deficits in each of those areas. But it doesn't mean that every single patient has a deficit in all of those little circles. So in other words, an individual patient is going to have deficits in some of those, but not necessarily in all of them. So like on the motor side, you might have a patient who has balance deficits um, and um, slowed reflex responses, but their strength is okay, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to learn about an individual patient's um, impairments through our physical examination, through our history and physical examination. And then what happens, the model kind of changes by the individual patient by within each of the big circles, whatever impairments that person has, the little circles that represent those impairments get larger, right? Um, and then all of a sudden that turns into, well, that becomes my treatment goals for these, these individual patients um, based on the symptoms that they're showing. Um, and there's interaction between the big circles. So certainly recognizing that something like laxity can influence sensory function and motor function, but then there's also an interplay between the sensory and motor sides. Right. And that's what functional rehab is all about is like trying to, to, you know, kind of rewrite that neural signature between the sensory and motor side, um, getting people in, uh, uh, positions where, where they're going to be challenged and have to contract their muscles in, in different ways in order to um, carry out whatever the movement goal is. Um, so, um, so that's kind of um, the the main part of the um, ankle instability model. But then across the outsides of it, um, we also have the personal and environmental factors. Uh, kind of coming from the the psychosocial side of the biopsychosocial model. So the middle main part of the model is all the bio, but we have to recognize the psychosocial around it. You know, whether that's a, you know, the patient's a college student who lives in a third floor apartment with no elevator and they got to walk up all those stairs or, um, you know, wh whether um, it's some, uh, you know, comorbidity that a patient might, might have that's going to influence their, um, you know, recovery from a musculoskeletal injury, we, we've got to, we can't el eliminate all those things and say, well, we just want to think about neuromusculoskeletal and that's it. There, there's a whole person attached to it. Yeah. And I thought that it was, it was just so awesome to see a, uh, a tangible application within like a, an example from a, like you guys said, laid out throughout the subsequent figures, but that model, I just thought it was awesome. Cause it's like this, it's this combination of the, the ICF. It's also, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Natalia Bittencourt paper on, uh, like a complex system for sports injuries, um, and understanding like those sorts of interacting variables and complexity in that. Um, and I just think it, uh, it, it really resonated with a lot of the things that I try and look at. And I think it was just, it was a very uh, bias confirming <laughs> figure that I saw. And I was like, oh, this, this seems to make a whole lot of sense. But for any of the listeners who have not looked at it, I think it's, it's super important. And not only can it apply to uh, chronic ankle instability, but I mean, you can extrapolate that model to almost any other injury that somebody can be dealing with. I, I would agree. Um, the, any large joint, I, I think it, it works. And um, um, yeah, you know, and, and it's, you know, I, I will admit like, um, you know, we started off with, it's just an ankle sprain. Um, 
it's not, you know, there, there's a lot of um, different impairments um, and insufficiencies that can um, be downstream effects of that initial uh, ligament. And it, it's more than just, you know, walk it off. Like we, we've really got to be intentional about rehabilitation and thinking about like, okay, if the neuromuscular system, uh, you know, really has some insufficiencies after injury, how long does it take in terms of exercise and rehabilitation and how much repetition does there need to be to make those, um, uh, um, return to normal function? How long does it take to that be to happen? And, you know, my main thing is I don't think most, um, athletes or patients do their rehabilitation for long enough to actually get lasting, um, neuromuscular effects. Yeah. And it makes a whole lot of sense as well, just to ensure that those uh, effects have completely been dissipated just because we know that the the downstream consequences of this uh, in terms of recurrence rates of being incredibly high and all those sorts of factors. But um, at the bottom of the figure, there's this really cool kind of continuum, right, between uh, just a single ankle sprain and then all the way through to chronic ankle instability um, without maybe going into too many details just because we can conserve time. But can you just talk about uh, some of the influences that uh, create the transition between a lateral ankle sprain and chronic ankle instability? Sure. Sure. So so we kind of think about this like on a spectrum that on one end of the spectrum, the, the good end, the outcome from a um, acute ankle sprain can be that someone becomes a coper. And kind of taking that term out of the ACL literature that, okay, this person had a ligament injury to their ankle, but they recovered fine and didn't have to change their activity level and everything's good. And right, you know, we've talked about like 40% of uh, people with first time ankle sprains going on to develop chronic ankle instability. Well, that means 60% don't, right? 60% of people did fine. So, you know, that the question is, how do we get a higher proportion to, to, to get there. Um, and thinking like kind of across the, the spectrum from Coper being the good end and chronic ankle instability being the bad end where, you know, the person's having recurrent sprains all the time, their function is low, their symptoms are high. Um, you know, there's a spectrum in between there. And, um, you know, what we really want to do is to think about like from either our, you know, especially our conservative treatments, how can we move someone who's having symptoms to be closer to a coper, you know, and um, that's really what we're, we're trying to, to do. And, uh, you know, there, there's some, you know, evidence out, out there around uh, recurrent ankle sprain risk that if patients can, or if athletes can get more than a year after their first sprain without a recurrent sprain, their risk of subsequent ankle sprain actually goes down to as if they've never had a sprain in the, in the first place. So like that first six months and that first year are really important in terms of the, the prevention initiatives, um, you know, whether those be exercise based, whether those be protective taping and bracing, um, you know, kind of go all in on, on that would be my recommendation in the first year. I, I think that is very helpful for a lot of the listeners just to understand that, you know, there is kind of this, this window of opportunity, um, and understanding that afterwards, um, the risk, if, as long as we manage things well, uh, will continue to go down. Um, 
So as a kind of fun wrap up question, I like to ask a lot of researchers, um, as I'm sure you're familiar with, um, whether it's other researchers or people reading research like clinicians and then trying to extrapolate that to practice. Um, occasionally, people will take some findings and run with them um, in terms of, you know, like what what a paper actually said versus um, what people read into Um to prevent that from happening, what would you say are some solid takeaways from this paper and maybe some things that, you know, this paper doesn't necessarily say? Sure. Yeah, I, I think the I think the paper does two things. I mean, one, I think it it presents a a model of how to think about joint injuries and um, you know, chronic ankle instability in um uh you know, how to think about it globally. Um, I think the second thing it does is it tries to reinforce the point of your treatment goal should be based on how the patient in front of you presents. Okay. So like, you know, don't follow the protocol. Okay. Because not all patients are the same. Right. And we, and we know that on a lot of friends, but like there's so many, um, deficits that have been reported on a group level for people with chronic ankle instability versus people without a history of ankle sprain. Um, but not every single patient is going to have all those deficits. So you actually have to assess for them. You know, you have to assess their laxity. You have to assess their arthrokinematics. You have to assess their strength. You have to, um, you know, assess things like, like, uh, kinesiophobia and pain levels. And then based on what e- an individual patient demonstrates, that's what the how the treatment plan should should be developed. Um, so I hope that's the takeaway. Um, in terms of um, what what I hope people don't misconstrue. Um, I hope they they don't misconstrue that this is so complicated. Like it's not worth um, trying to implement a, a model like this in clinical practice. Um, because um, even though there's like there's a lot of different boxes and circles and stuff in, in the the model, um, I don't think there's anything there that um, um, page, there that clinicians haven't seen in in their own clinical practice. Um, so so that would be my my hope is is that um, uh, people don't misconstrue the injury as being unmanageable because it's um, too complex. I love that. It's sophisticated, but approachable at the same time. Um, so my final question is something that we also ask everybody and um, just kind of giving a background on the listeners of this podcast generally are strength and conditioning coaches, rehab providers, as well as sports scientists. Sure. Um, knowing your background and expertise, we, or at least I tend to bring researchers on to the podcast. Um, so in your professional opinion, who do you think we should have on next? Oh, wow. About any topic, any topic. <laughs> um, I think you should, you should have on, uh, my, my UVA kinesiology colleague, uh, Chris Coons. Um, and Chris is doing some really neat things, um, in terms of building a nationwide database of, um, um, like return to play testing on people recovering from ACL reconstructions. And he's really focusing on adolescent athletes. Um, and he's got a publicly available dashboard um, that lets um, 
individual clinicians can like put their own patients data in to see like where they rank against age and um, gender matched peers and, and stuff like that. So I think Chris is doing some really neat um, uh, kind of data sciencey stuff in the sports rehab space. I dig it. Well, uh, if Chris Coons is listening to it, he'll know that we're coming for him. Right. Um, Jay, thank you so much for being on the podcast, sharing your knowledge and just unpacking this paper with us. It's going to be super helpful, I think, for a lot of the listeners. Um, if anybody has questions about the podcast or wants to reach out to you or just connect with you in any way, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Um, I, I do have a, a Twitter handle or X, I guess we're calling it now. It's just at uh, J dash hurdle. Um, so you can um, get me there. You can also email me. Um, my email address is the letter J and then my last name hurdle H E R T E L at Virginia uh, dot edu. Um, but, or you can look me up on the internet and find all that stuff there too. So thanks a lot, Dylan. This has been a, a, a lot of fun. Awesome. Likewise, I, I really appreciate your time, Jay, and uh, wishing you the best of luck on the future endeavors you have with research and everything else. Great. Thanks so much. <laughs>